you mean you're going out tonight? I thought you were having dinner with us. That's all I'm asking for. One night with your mother on Mother's Day. That's too much to ask. You talk like that to your mother on Mother's Day? Nice. Well, little lady, let me elucidate here. Everybody wants to be a cat Because a cat's the only cat Who knows where it's at Tell me everybody's picking up on that feeling Hello, hello, this is Colby Herschel And Carly Sheandra And we have a very special guest this week It's my mom! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, this is my mother name is uh, Michelle Drum. I'm Carly's mom. <laughs> also one of our biggest fans. She's always listening to our podcast, uh, always giving great comments and great ads on Facebook and other social media pages. Um, as you guys know, Mother's Day is coming up and we here at Side Story Studios uphold that tradition wholeheartedly and with much love. So this week we, uh, we asked Carly's mom uh, what movie she'd like to watch and she chose... The Aristocats. Now, why don't you tell us why you chose this particular movie? Well, thank you for asking. Um, no, I've always just, it's always been one of my favorite movies. And as I got, I remember watching it as a little girl myself. Then I remember watching it with you. On, <laughs> That's me. On the, uh, yeah. What were those? VHSs? VHSs. Jeez, yes. we had... Remember? I do remember. Oh man, there's yeah. a special kind of magic in watching old Disney movies yeah. on a VHS. In fact, I still own the VHS. Do you? I do. Oh, that's awesome. It's, it's probably a collector's item at this point, yeah. They're that's gonna true. roll back like uh, I think like records kind of did. Yeah. It's gonna be VHSs next year. Oh, you yeah. watch. So it was. It, it, it's interesting to watch something like that and and have specific memories in different times of your life because you see and hear and feel different things about it. So I remember watching it as a kid and just enjoying, it, it was very, it seemed very sophisticated. Yeah. You know, you got a little taste of this, a little taste of that. But then as a parent watching it with kids, you appreciated the fact that there was, there was a little bit more of a story behind it. You could kind of see this, you know, the mom and how she's trying to maintain and get through a really difficult situation. And, you know, we had some... It, when you were growing up. So it, there was, you know, as a single mom sort of thing, to know that, you know, sometimes there's trepidation and you have to figure out a way to get over it and you still have to kind of have a happy face about it, you know? There's a goal in sight. So, so and then getting to watch it tonight with you and your sisters and Colby and, and Matthew, it's nice to, you know, again, you get to, you still appreciate and see different things. It's, it's good to know that my childhood growing up, I don't remember watching a lot of animated movies because I know that they're not, like, your favorite thing. Like, you watch it with us to, like, be patient with us, but you've no. never been, you've never looked at it the way I have. No. So. I, I don't think many people have looked at it the way they No, <laughs> absolutely yeah, not. So. We're a little in-depth over here. Yeah. So it was, it was really fascinating to have my mom come forward with a, like, you've suggested this more than once. You've been very... Yes, I was pretty subtle about it. <laughs> Well, and you know, it's so funny that you bring that up, and what a beautiful reason, I think, to, to love this movie so passionately. But a lot of people over the years have been kind of bringing this movie up more and more. It's kind of a beloved thing. And actually, like, I'm thinking, like, my sister, this is one of her favorites, I know. People, like, come out of the woodwork, and this movie didn't do well when it came out initially. This was, like, the third in what they call the Xerox era, after Disney yes. made 101 Dalmatians and Jungle Book, which were huge, huge hits, rather. 
And Jungle Book was the last movie that Disney was directly involved with, and then he died. So this was kind of the first foray without Disney. And they kind of stuck to what they knew. There are many parallels with 101 Dalmatians. It's kind of like, like, oh, 101 Dalmatians was in London. So we'll put this one in Paris. This one was dogs. And this one will be cats. <laughs> yeah. But it's really endearing. And I think it's just kind of like they embraced the Frenchness. They embraced the music. The animals are really cute. The songs are great. The voice acting is really standout in this movie, actually. I think more than a lot of other Disney efforts. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I, I think a big reason as to why is because they embraced having children. <laughs> The, this this film compared to 101 Dalmatians is the easiest comparison to draw because 101 Dalmatians tells a very similar story but from a very different perspective. When you have a story that's about a family that's in the triple digits, you lose a lot of the, the personality that comes with kind of interacting with characters one-on-one. -on -one. And in this, you have a mother and her three children and then ultimately they're like stepdad. Yeah. Um, but it gives you the time to kind of understand a lot more of what make them who they are and part of that is because they committed to really strong voice actors and the voice actors really indulged in the life of like the characters i mean my, my favorite example is the kids because like marie has like stutters in certain places and like hiccups in her words and when then, she sings she's kind of flat sometimes yeah and then the brothers often like mispronounce things and like it, it's it's delivered very organically um and I think another reason that works so well is, as siblings, they have really great banter that doesn't feel phoned in. <laughs> like, the dialogue is, is genuine, and, it, and that's true for pretty much everybody. Which is, it's so weird, because, you know, when you do a Disney movie or when you do an animated movie, you're basically acting out a storyboard, kind of, they show you a picture of what's going to happen, you're like, okay, say it like this. And then they have that actor say it like this. But those scenes, Eva Gabor plays uh, Duchess, and her voice is just so characterized. And then Phil Harris, who did Baloo, and what else did he... Oh, he was Little John. Oh, that's which right, is, yeah. yeah. Um, he plays Thomas O'Malley, and he's really kind of, in the end, kind of the star in many ways in the way I watch it. Um, but they just, their scenes together are just kind of electric, which is strange for an animated movie about cats. It really is. Now, you know a lot about Ava Gabor. Well, not a, well, <laughs> not a lot, but I, I, I've always been very fond of her. I just, she is Duchess. I mean, her voice, no matter what stressful, whether it was a stressful situation or it was a fun situation or it was, she needed to be a little wily, her voice is like butter. She could get. She could say many, many swear words, and it would sound eloquent because like it's coming butter. out of her mouth. So exactly, she had that ability to like stabilize the situation very quickly. Even though you, could, you know, like with the whole basket when they were got dumped and she was trying to find the kids and stuff, she's in a panic mode. She's in that like, oh my god, I don't know what happened, but I've got to hold it together kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But she does it in such a way that you're like, oh, she'll. She'll be fine. They're going to be fine. <laughs> Even if she finds a dead kitten, it's all going to work out. Yeah. It's Ava Gabor. Yeah. No, and that's so funny that you point that out because it's kind of a high stakes plot. Like, this is a lost family mm -hmm. and they're trying to get home. But, you know, you know it's not that stressful just because she's handling it, you know. She's just, she's going to grin and kind of get through whatever happens. And her, her sheer audacity and goodwill is going to kind of stumble them on, like, a solution. And it's funny because it comes from... 
the, the aristocracy. It comes from, like, their breeding and upbringing. And it's something that we're introduced to early in the film where they, they are very, like, yes, refined in their practices, but that kind of calmness and that sense of, like, stability. But, so, but also, I think that she... You assume that's how she's always been. She's been brought up that way, right? Yeah. yeah. So no exposure to the outside world. So to to find herself in that situation, and to be able to have to handle it and ha- and handle it the way that she did, was an interesting um, choice for her. You know what yeah. I mean? Because there's no, she's used to this very specific lifestyle. She's used to being taken care of. And even though she's a good mom in practice in the house, you know, with the music lessons and the art and the making sure they use their manners and all that, she's completely out of her element. But she still manages to, to handle Yeah, you'd never handle. know it. Yeah. Absolutely. Classic fish out of water yes. for her. And she doesn't even believe that uh, Edgar, who, spoiler alert, the, the butler did it. Um, he, um, she doesn't even believe that Edgar could be so malicious as to kidnap them and send them away when her son tells her that. Right. Yeah, nobody believed him. No, <laughs> which makes it a very. Good I cover. told you. <laughs> and it, it's kind of nice to see. And of course, it's a Disney movie. It's meant for children, so of course the message is going to be decently positive. But you have a, a a different sect of society interacting with a bunch of tramps and, and scroungy mongrels mm-hmm. and alley cats, and they're having a great time. And there's never a moment of negativity. Like they, I mean, yeah, truthfully, they don't even really turn on Edgar, ever. I mean, they they always approach it with the highest, like sense of they just have a positive outlook. Well, at the end, they did send him to Timbuktu, but oh, but, but that was more of the alley cats than yeah. anybody. Duchess and the kittens had nothing to do with it. They were just kind of tossed around. They were just thrown yeah. around a lot. <laughs> yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about um, just kind of the animation style God, in itself. Yes. And I think that there are a lot of shortcuts in this movie, but I think it kind of accidentally made it uh, a very rich kind of original contour that's really kind of only specifically in this movie. I think there's some elements of it in other movies, but this one... Kind of, we were talking about how it looks scratchy. The Xerox era is probably one of my favorites, um, only because I, I come from, I mean, I don't come from an animation background by way of practice, but by way of study, the 2D animation era and like how hand-drawn animation works is just a fascinating approach to the, the style because it's, it's labor-intensive, like you would not believe. And the Xerox era is like the beginning of like the shortcut. <laughs> It's like when you finally start to figure out how to cheat your way through doing, you know, two hours worth of in-betweens and kind of start to, you know, pull and pick and, and just copy yourself. But the the cause, the, the response to that and what you get out of it is you get this really, like, by all intents and purposes, kind of crappy line quality. Like, the sketches look, I mean, the, the line art in the actual animation sequences look sketched. It's very rough. It's non, it's unfinished. It's, it's kind of impractical. And truthfully, if you took the color off of the panels, you would see what is the rough keyframes. And it's funny because the opening sequence, you see the rough keyframes without their proper colors. And it does have this really rich, it has a depth to it because it was drawn by hands. Yeah. And they make no effort to hide that. Um, And you actually brought up a really fascinating point in history that I actually didn't know about how this movie was kind of rushed out. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and that, that's a fascinating part of the Disney history that I was unfamiliar with. Well, I think from my understanding is that they thought they had a good thing going, like we talked about with 101 Dalmatians and the Jungle Book. 
and they pitched it as a story with a maid and a butler who were trying to gain the fortune of the opera singer that was the madame and they pitched it several different ways and disney just was like eh meh we're not feeling it we're not feeling it and so when they finally did were able to get it all together they couldn't even really workshop the actors they kind of had to pull in from people that they had used before so it, it was almost just like a like a b kind of thing like yeah this is what we can do we're going to make it work yeah we'll push it out but it, they ended up coming together really nicely and even though you recognize a lot of the voices from other movies the act you know it was a lot of fun to watch and listen to them because they did really do justice to their characters i thought yeah and it's funny because you'd never know i say it's funny a lot you'd never know that it's rushed the way that it is production value wise True, there is definitely some, like, major plot holes, one of which we caught is the fact that Edgar really has no reason to go back and find the dogs. He has he has little bearings on the plot <laughs> until the denouement yeah, at the very end. He's, he's the inciting incident and the climax, and that's pretty much it. And then he's kind of a vaudeville act in the middle. He kind of gets into crazy daring-do with these two other dogs. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, like, unnecessary gags. That I understand the importance of by way of flushing out a children's film. This this is a babysitter by yeah. by all intents and purposes, but it, it it's a charming babysitter. And it's it's got a lot of depth by way of like they they put a significant amount of thought into the reactions and and even just the visuals, like in throughout the course of the story. Obviously, the cat's adventure is far more important than that of Edgar or the Madame because they really don't matter. <laughs> but. Um, it is kind of neat to know that it was kind of a rush job film because by Disney standards, it it fits the mold. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It certainly, when you watch it, you're not like, oh, is this Disney quality? Because it certainly is, and it's charming, and it's fun. And it really is kind of more fun than a lot of other Disney movies, I think, nowadays, too. They spend a lot more time playing with these characters in this world. I do personally love the backgrounds, particularly in this movie. They they give me that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. And I was saying when we were watching it, this feels very much like a, a sick day movie. Like when you're homesick, you throw on Aristocats and you feel like kind of like that warm, warm country. Yeah, yeah, French feel, you mm-hmm. know? And it's, France being such a, I mean, obviously it's a very varied backdrop, but coming off of like 101 Dalmatians, 101 Dalmatians is depressing. For all intents and purposes. It's a sad. It's very gray and very blue and very white and dark and there's not a lot of saturation. And the Paris that were shown in the Aristocats, you have the vibrant countryside with like cherry blossom trees Mm. and then the city, even the low rent district is colorful and Mm -hmm. it's a lot of purples and blues. And then the neighborhood that um, the Aristocats actually live in almost reminds me of like... I'm trying to think. There's a specific painter that I know I'm thinking. I mean, my immediate thought is like almost like a Van Gogh painting, but like in that there's a lot of splotches of like yellows and greens. Yeah, you know it what might I'm pop of? out of the lines. The painting that I'm thinking of is the one that's hanging in my living room. Ah, it's and specific for all you listeners out there. I have no <laughs> idea who painted it, but it's it is a yell. It's a very yellow painting of just a cobblestone street, and there's like green leaves. But that's it's just that warm saturation and that splotch of color. Mm-hmm. I think when you think of like a, a like a, a French art student painting the rues and and the and the places in uh, in Paris, it's kind of what you imagine, and I think that's what's kind of so nice and nostalgic about it. 
Um, I personally, I like looking at it because it reminds me of the sets in the Metropolitan Opera's production of La Boheme. And it's a very classic feel, especially in you brought up the low rent district. It very much feels like this is just a bunch of bohemians. And yes. like, and in the very earliest sense of the word, like, you know, like these are just artists here to art. And they're just having a fun time, and they might not make it to the end of the week, but heck, they had a good time doing it. And this is set in 1910, which is is right in that sweet spot. Of right the, in La Belle Epoque. It's right around the Art Nouveau and Toulouse-Lautrec, and like that beautiful, just like France was it. I think uh, there there was a vista shot, and I was talking with uh, your Matthew. We were like, oh, well, there's all of the landmarks in Paris. Because you could see the Arc de Triomphe, and you could see the Eiffel Tower, and you could see Notre Dame just kind of lumped together in the distance. And it's, I mean, yeah, it, it's just, it owns, it, like, it knows what it is. And one of the best examples of that, I think, is is the Scat Cat group. Because you have, like, I mean, nowadays it may not translate. Quite. Yeah, there, there may be a couple of flaws in that scat um, cat well, troop. They are definitely caricatures and admittedly not super flattering ones. Um, but the, the concept there is, I, I think, good. Because it's it's all it's cultures. It's right. just a bunch of different people that just got together mm -hmm. to jam. Absolutely. It is certainly endearing. And it's cool that they kind of zoom in onto all these kind of different cultures for little solos for all these characters mm -hmm. in what is essentially a jazz uh, number, you know? And in a jazz arrangement, you have time allotted to each character to have a solo or an instrument. Yeah. Fun fact. Oh. They wanted Louis Armstrong to be Scat Cat, but he was unable to do it. So they picked Scat Cat Crothers, who was a relatively famous jazz musician himself. Now, is that kind of music something that you like grew up with not no no not really no but it, i always liked it and enjoyed it but i didn't know i think as i got older i i you know became more appreciative of it for fu for fun fact for everybody out there my mom was born in the late 60s like turn of the like 70s. 69 yeah yeah so so the era you you were born the year this movie came out yes i was so but i did not see it that year no of course. <laughs> and if you did you would yes have i would not known. remember but, no, I, I, yeah, I liked the music a lot in it. I liked all the music in it. I thought it covered a lot of bases. I, you were saying before how you thought it was uh, cohesive, and I tend to disagree with that. Oh. In the respect that I feel like there, there was a lot put into it. They wanted to cover everything. So, yeah. to me, like, um, the mom's so French-sounding, you know, obviously. Yeah. Ava yeah. Gabor. But the kids, yeah, not a lick of French. No, not, not at all. Not a lick. Thomas O'Malley, obviously. We were not saying Vegas, right. Frank yeah. Sinatra, right. Dino. Frank Sin yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But I mean, and, and that's, could, could, I mean, obviously there's the Disney suspension of belief where you yes. just have to kind of get over the fact that like typically they don't get accented characters. But for all intents and purposes, most of the characters that were introduced to in Paris um, like George, I don't recall him being very French. George, no. George the oh, lawyer. he the lawyer, the, like, hundred and two year old lawyer. Yeah, um, Madame is like, she. She's pretty yeah, French. She was, she yeah, has, she like yeah. She, she has, has an opera singer. She has a uh, Ava Gabor's accent. It's just kind yes. of like a like a slushy like. It's kind of French, but like it's just beautiful. Whenever these kind of movies happen, it's hard to like, because the assumption is everyone is speaking French. 
in France. Right. So when you do a movie that's set in France, are you like, oh, should they have French accents? But that makes no sense because you're just trying to be clear for the audience. More what I think I appreciate is that the characters that are presented as a certain, like, culture are embracing it. Like, a good example is the geese. Oh, my um, gosh. The sisters and their Uncle Waldo. They are very English. Abigail and... Amelia. Amelia. The, the geese make me crack up. The Goose Steps High is one of my favorite backing tracks, I think, of any Disney soundtrack. Isn't it, like, just a straight ripoff of Big Elephant Walk by Henry Mancini? I, it very much sounds like that. Yeah, I think it's, like, tweaked just enough to be light-footed. Yeah. And it, it works, and they, they use it as a theme that, like really like illustrates my, my favorite is when they play it when they walk off with their drunk uncle and they're like laughing the entire time and the walk cycle's all messed up and but they're presented as very English and they identify as English and then all of the people in the scat cat group multicultural with the exception of the the cat that I guess was supposed to be like Ringo <laughs> Yes. Yeah. He was British. He was he British was at the end. Yeah, for that one line, yes. he was, like, really British. Yeah. And then in the beginning, he didn't seem... I didn't catch it at first. And Beatlemania I, was still thriving. Yeah. <laughs> and I pre... Like, at first, I was like, oh, he's the gypsy cat. But then he turned into, like, Ringo. And <laughs> right. I was like, oh, it's, it's a Ringo cat. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, like, the Italian cat, the Russian cat... The Chinese cat to maybe yes. a little bit of a lesser racially sensitive... Certainly, state. certainly the biggest criminal of the bunch. But... Beloved, all the same. And that's the voice of Tigger. Also. He was the only cat oh. that had blue eyes in the Alley Cats too. All the all the cats, including Thomas O'Malley, have yellow eyes, and the Siamese cat is the, the only Siamese one. cat had blue eyes. That's now, fascinating. That may be true because Siamese cats, I think, typically have blue eyes. Oh, um, look at you, Disney. Duchess um, had blue eyes. Well, and Marie had blue eyes. There, that. So blue eyes aren't... T this is a very weird science fact. I'm sorry that I know this. <laughs> um, cats typically don't have blue eyes because they're not really reflective in dark light. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those traits that's bred into... Like recessive gene kind yeah, of Yeah, it's a very... It's sought after and is expensive to have mm -hmm. because it doesn't make practical sense. With the exception of Siamese cats, which typically have blue eyes because I think that's all that exists in that gene pool. Like, they don't typically breed out of it. Um, I don't remember and I actually don't think they do. I'm trying to think of the Siamese cats from Lady and the Tramp. Do they have blue eyes? I think they do. I think they specifically do and this is just from my memory but... That could be wrong. We reserve the right to be in <laughs> about that assumption but um, that's a really small detail. I'm I'm like proud you picked up on. Oh well thank you. I know. <laughs> but also I'm proud that Disney like remembered. Yeah. Because I never would have noticed. He had bright blue eyes. Yeah he had like he had, like, the same kind of, when they zoom in on Duchess and he's, like, yes. your eyes are like sapphires. Yes. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the score and the music. Uh, George Bruns did the score, and as we kind of talked about, the score is mostly pastiche. And George Bruns was very much a chameleon in that way. He did The Jungle Book. He did Robin Hood. And so what he kind of did is, I bet you they kind of went into the storyboard room and they're like, George, give us a, a Parisian kind of minuet for this scene. Or give us a big elephant walk style thing. For, for geese. For the geese. <laughs> um, and I think he definitely had a very specific thing. Because sometimes for the chase sequences, he sounds very specifically like his other work. If you look at the chase sequences in The Jungle Book and Robin Hood, they very much have that same aesthetic. It's kind of a jazzy kind of thing. But he's still kind of Mickey Mouse's, which is uh, synchronizing the music 
to match up exactly with what the characters are doing on screen. And then, of course, the Sherman Brothers wrote the uh, wrote the songs. This was their second feature with Disney. They were still kind of new, and Disney really loved their stuff, and that's why he kind of had them do Mary Poppins. But um, I do want to make sure I get this right, because I know that Everybody Wants to Be a Cat was not indeed written by them. Um, I'll look that up, though, because that's kind of the number one song I think everyone walks away with. Yeah. Um, you did just remind me, though, one of the other examples of characterization through voice acting that I love the most is Napoleon and Lafayette, the two very Southern American, like, hound dogs. Yes. That, like, for all intents and purposes, shouldn't be in Paris. Down to what, you know, what their little funny sayings were. Were very bug. cricket bug and yeah, just very specific to the South. So it's it's cohesive in that like when they when they characterize someone as something, the character is like fully that. Full on, yeah. Did you find it? I they are keeping it hidden. I will tell you what the Disney Wikipedia page is like. Oh, this song is written by Scatman. Do you the think cat. it was Scatman Crothers? N- no, it was not it was Scatman, not Scatman Cro- Crothers, Crothers. According to Colby. Um. um one of the reasons that I think this movie may not have been so well-received, though, is I think it might... I mean, and you would know better than I would because you were, you know, present Alive at the time. Alive um, <laughs> it, it seems like that kind of cultural multidiversity, like, wasn't a selling point. Well, think about the times. I mean, you're talking about a female, a single mother. There's no, There's no backstory as to... Yeah, what who the dad, the dad was, or if there ever was a dad, you kind of get the sense from the kids that they don't know who their father is, right? Yeah. So for a female character to meet up with a man, a male character, yeah, and use her femininity as a way to get something, right, in front of her children, I think it was... It, a very interesting choice of a storyline at that time because if you think about Disney movies as a whole there's never a family there's never that family there's usually a, a, a parent and a child some yeah. sort of or an orphan. they focus or an orphan. on one relationship exactly yeah. this was this was a single mom and three kids and i thought it was very interesting and very telling of the time and when the geese meet them and they make the assumption that they're a married couple yeah and then then they have to kind of explain it and their whole the geese their whole attitude changes immediately towards thomas o'malley so suddenly they don't find him so savable exactly they're like oh well well so you it was really and this is i mean i hate that i'm asking for clarification but it's like crazy like that that well it's crazy to think about it now but yeah at the time, they wouldn't have... Oh, that would have been, the, you know, the early 70s where, yeah, people that got divorced, well, that was scandalous. You didn't do it. People didn't not get married. Yeah. You know, you had a child out of wedlock that was very frowned upon. So, for, like, again, we don't know the backstory to the kid's dad. Yeah. But you're going to assume... Yeah. They, he was not a party to them being yeah. born and raised. And that's totally separate from the fact the kids all look different. <laughs> and that, that's absolutely a fascinating lens to look at this movie. I didn't even consider that. But yeah, I can't think of any other Disney movies from before then or apparently even even inherently after then that really kind of focuses on that experience 
and that's very cool. Yeah, nothing addresses, like, a parent, like, the relationship of essentially, like, a step-parent. Because mm-hmm. if there's, if it's a, a parent and their children, it stays the parent and the children. There's never the relationship of, like, the parent maybe, like, meeting another person. The only thing I can really think of is, like, maybe the Iron Giant. Well, that's not even Disney. But, like, that's the only, like, animated film I can Yeah, with a single mother. I'm trying to... Maybe Lilo and Stitch kind of fits the bill, but that's a sister and a sister, so... Even though the sister is taking on the role of a mother in many ways. And she starts out with David. Yeah, She doesn't, like, meet him and, like, fall for him over the course of... That's fair. David's present in Lilo's life. Thomas O'Malley just kind of rolls in and, like, fits out. He does. He Frank Sinatra bit and... I, that's that's yeah. a really, and that's interesting because only you'd only get that if you were an audience at the time, and that probably sheds a lot of light on why this wasn't it well received. Huh. <laughs> well, I they could have you know definitely been a factor in it. I th- I think it it certainly was because especially looking at it now, there's a lot of really good humor in it. It is very funny. It's it a, is a funny movie, yeah. no matter what age you are. Even Absolutely. right down to the uh, the end, the end. Yeah. <laughs> yes. When it's when Lafayette, Lafayette says, "I'm the boss." Rule of threes. That's the last. I'm the leader. Yeah, uh, yes, that's the I'm, third one. Yeah, I'm the leader. I'm gonna say when it's the end, and then he gets hit in the head with the the end logo, and he's like, oh, "It's the end." <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, and it's not dated. No, like you can watch it. It's right timeless, and yeah, it fits despite being a very a very like like time capsule type piece. And it, that, it still translates. There is a Wizard of Oz of supporting characters um, that are just funny. And we, we, we brought up the, the, the Gander sisters. Yes. Um, their Uncle Waldo, who is a, uh, a wine... He is a wine-basted turkey, and he is hilariously Marinated. Drunk. Yeah, he's marinated. Marinated in it. Yes. Um, and then you have the lawyer, Georges, who is this decrepit old basically kind of a marionette in the way he moves yes. but he has the he has the funniest voice and he's just spry as a slinky too and Fun. he's the lawyer he's it, a lawyer he's just this old lawyer he goes way back with adelaide the madam the opera singer um obviously edgar is a character in himself mm-hmm. uh these two dogs lafayette and napoleon napoleon napoleon, napoleon and lafayette what a good uh, it's a very quotable movie and of course uh fat cat scat cat and the yeah. and the gang even Roquefort and Roquefort, Roquefort. like there there is actually a really fru 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 the horse there's a very big supporting cast and they're all thorough yeah like they all have have designated time and really like committed voice actors that I, I think makes a big difference in and definitely it it gives you a sense of family like these kids grew up in this kind of environment so you're really like quick to trust like Roquefort and fru fru just because of the way they like treat the kids, and I think that's why you're so cl- tw- so quick to trust Thomas O'Malley, because while he's initially hitting on Duchess, and like we totally get that, when the kids come out, he kind of changes his tune. It takes yeah. him a couple of minutes. No, because there's a moment when I'm like, oh my goodness, because that's a that's a joke kids wouldn't get, but when Thomas O'Malley sees that this beautiful cat he meets has three kittens, he's like, oh oh my gosh. Uh, and he tries to kind of ditch him, but just by circumstances of the plot, he kind of hangs around and realizes he could be a pappy after all. But I mean, and, and it's it's not even with like malicious intent. Like he's no. probably prepared to like drop them off and leave several times, and it's just he's he's good with the kids. 
which I think makes you as an audience just kind of like inherently root for them. Well, it also kids. It, it it also kind of gives him an adequacy too. I think you know because yeah. he's a loner, but to have like these kittens look up to you in that way, like all of them look up in different ways. Marie, who is who is just kind of enamored with him, who has never seen another adult male cat. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then uh, uh, Toulouse, uh, the the kind of feisty orange kitten, is like, oh, awesome, like a bro. Like I can yeah. finally like kind of be a bro because because uh, Berlioz, the, the little black kitten, is kind of a kind of a snob. He's kind of an artsy fartsy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to say everybody wants to be a cat. These are the composers Al Rinker and Floyd Huddleston on lyrics. Al Rinker was a big collaborator with Bing Crosby back in the day. Oh, I was going to say, do you recognize them? And of course you do. I do, I do. Now, they didn't do anything else for the film? They just did Everybody Wants to Be a Cat? They just did that song, and I, I wonder if there's a little story. They might have just like been on the project for that one song, and then they're like, we got to get this out, get the Sherman Brothers on this, and they just tried to repeat the success of Jungle Book, I bet. And you know what's funny? There's not... There's what? There's Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, there's Thomas O'Malley... And then there's the introduction. Scales in your arpeggios. And then what else has lyrics? Um, what else has lyrics? Oh, is, uh, no, I think those it. are the, those are the only songs. Yeah. And scales and arpeggios and the Aristocats, um, the introduction, are both kind of short. They're not really like full, full songs. Yeah. No, and they just kind of they're they're both expositionary. Um, yeah. The uh, opening number, Aristocats, was the final performance of. Uh, famed actor Maurice Chevalier, who you might know from Gigi and other great French films. Um, a movie that Colby has highly recommended after watching The Aristocats. I've just I've just been on such a Gigi kick because who doesn't love a little Learner and Low when you watch Paris scenes? And Ava Gabor is in that as well. And right? Ava Gabor is in that. She has kind of a cameo performance, but it's it's very funny. <laughs> um, the only other thing that I forgot that I wanted to say was the cats get wet a few times. And they animate being a wet cat very well. <laughs> they look very disgruntled. Like, it's such a sad thing <laughs> to see them, like, sopping wet. But you mentioned um, Toulouse, or Berlioz, being, like, kind of snooty. Yeah. And the one scene when they first fall out of the basket and Duchess has to find them, and he, like, he's crawls on the rock. out of the puddle, and he's, like, shivering, and he just I'm keeps calling for mama. mama. I'm so cold. <laughs> and the frog scares him. Yes. Like, that, and he's then... He's the wussy of the bunch. He really is. Pointed out, he's the mama's boy. Yeah, he's the mama's boy. Definitely. And yeah. then later, even when Thomas O'Malley gets pulled from the river with the two geese... Like, it's the same thing. Like, they're, they're hunched forward, they're dripping wet, they look heavy, they just look miserable. Um, and it goes to kind of the testament of the studio for also treating the cats as cats. Like, that sequence after Thomas O'Malley gets out of the river, he starts rolling on the ground. Because he's drying off. Because he's drying off. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't shake like a dog, which is the easy joke to make. Yeah. He actually, like, behaves like a cat would. And it happens a few times with things like, you know, grooming themselves or Duchess grooming the kittens or, like, carrying them by the nape of their neck. But the cats are characterized as cats, which is kind of nice to see for, like... You know, a fairly anthropomorphic animal cast. They treated them very seriously, and that's something Disney's kind of been doing kind of since the top. Like, besides things like Snow White and stuff, which were kind of more cartoonish. But whenever they'd make a movie that focuses on one animal, they'd always do their due diligence and bring in the animals and kind of observe them. And one of the biggest, one of the biggest examples of that is Bambi. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> Colby's favorite Disney movie. Ab- um, favorite animated movie of all time. Oh, wait. Oh, my. We have to hold off on talking about it, because once we jump that shark, there's no going back. Oh, absolutely. But Bambi is, like, notorious for, they like, Walt Disney brought in, like, live baby deer, and was like, figure it out. He sent multiple artists back to school for five years to learn how to animate animal anatomy. Wow. That's serious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this... It shows. It does. It does, yeah. It, it really does. And it's a level of seriousness that they're treated with, which is, is really nice to see. And especially in this, there's a lot of different breeds of cats that happen in this movie. Yeah. And the best example is, is Duchess versus Thomas, because mm-hmm. Thomas is kind of this, like, husky-built, kind of tough... He's a mix. Sleek-haired, yeah, like yeah, alley he's cat. short-haired. He's got a little yeah. bit of a paunch. Yeah. yeah, and he's got, like, a double chin and a thick neck. And, and then Duchess is... Beautiful. He's floofy. All of her and all of her kittens are fluffy. Her tail is a boa. Yeah, like <laughs> it is. Yeah, yes. she matches beautifully. She looks like Ava Gabor. She does. Yeah, they and definitely did that. That's yes. the other thing that, that Disney's kind of really well known for, is a lot of times they will pull in aspects. Because Ava Gabor, I'm pretty sure, was cast early on. Yeah, they were like, we're going to do a cat movie with Ava Gabor. It was yeah. probably the running title. The they, yeah, they drew they drew Duchess around Ava Gabor. And then they even brought her back for The Rescuers, which I think holds a dear place in both of our hearts. Both of those movies she came to do. And she's very much similar. She is not a white cat, but a white mouse. And with a purple, yes. like, you know, pompadour And hat. even in that movie, the character carries herself the way that Ava Gabor carried herself. Duchess is Ava Gabor. Ava Gabor was a one classy lady. And she always dressed well, presented well. She was always on. And that's how Duchess is. She's always on. Even when she's has internal conflict and she's worried, she's on. And it's neat to have you as a mother kind of recognize that because you never stop to think that Duchess is like upset or nervous. Because she doesn't show it once throughout the film. That serenity is something that isn't it's not taught. It's like an inherent. So I, my opinion of that would be it comes from her upbringing. Obviously, she's, she's got that, that, classiness and that self confidence, right? Yeah. Because that's all she knows. But there's a scene when, um, she's when it starts to thunderstorm out when they're in the basket. She's trying to get the kittens back in the basket, and she gets back in the basket with them, and she looks out and she has a moment where she says. I don't know how we're going to get out of this. Um, you can see that she's nervous. She's worried. She is out of her element, and she's got these three babies she needs to take care of, and she still hasn't wrapped her mind around what's going on. But her motherly instinct is, I've just got to put on this face, and I've got to get through it. And that's, and that's the, the key part of parenting, I have to tell you. There's huh. a lot of times as a parent where you have no freaking idea what you're doing. And you've got someone looking up to you like, we're all right. And you're like, yeah, of course, we're fine. Everything's great. When inside, you're like, holy shit. <laughs> so I think that's true true to the parenting side of it. And she's doing it on her own. So, so what a perfect uh, model, I'd say, for Mother's Day. And uh, getting an insight onto the mother's experience with Ava Gabor as Duchess. I think one of kind of the... As the years roll by, one of the more iconic, I think, Disney protagonists in many ways, I think her image is very kind of ubiquitous with kind of that era of Disney animation. Yeah, and it's it's definitely something that I haven't 
I mean, I won't lie, when you said that you wanted to Aristocats, I, I kind of just assumed that it was, like, the only Disney movie you knew. Well, thanks, Carl. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I believe me, I, I, I didn't really get it. I just assumed that it was a movie you liked. I didn't think there was any deeper reason for it. And I also didn't really think of it as a movie about a mother. I mean, I, I didn't think it was, like, a fitting Mother's Day movie because it's not about a mom, but... It's because she carries herself so calmly that you kind of forget that it's about a mom because she doesn't really struggle with it at all. The, no. the, the movie's plot doesn't revolve around Ava Gabor figuring out how to be a good mom. Right. She, she just, just is a good mom. Right. And you think about Madame never was married. She was, you know, a single lady. And then, side note, another side note, Ava Gabor never had children. So it's not like, as an actress, she's pulling from life experience or something inside of herself. She's just that good of an actress that she was able to project that. And again, there's no effort being put forth there on her part. Or at least it feels that way. Yeah. For the character. Absolutely. So yeah, so I think that, unless we have any other thoughts on Aristocats... No, I mean, I'm... Truth be told, I think it's a shame that it it's been kind of forgotten in the Disney catalog. I know it's kind of swinging back now. It really is. And I think it's coming back because jazz is coming back. In like a huh. really, like, well, I mean, and a good example is like La La Land. Like wow. that, well, and, I, and if you haven't read Colby's editorial on La La Land, it's on the Side Story Studios website right now. Um, we don't love La La Land to answer any questions. Um, but, but I mean it in the sense of like, La La Land romanticizes like jazz. And this movie certainly does kind of paint that picture. I think, honestly, on one of the DVD versions of Aristocats I had, um, one, one of uh, my only DVD copy of Aristocats. Colby has several. Uh, every I, movie. Uh, that made me um, nervous for a minute. But. Um, on the back, it was like, introduce your kids to jazz. And it's kind of become that kind of... Uh, they call this the Jazz Age. Disney calls this section the Jazz Age, not the Xerox era, because that's kind of naming it after a, a shortcut, as opposed to something. <laughs> they cool. weren't super, yeah, upfront about that, but, um, but I, I, I feel like I've noticed it more and more in, you know, recent years that like jazz has been more present. I've heard more jazz. I've seen jazz talked about more. It's been in movies. It's been like. Not, not that jazz is coming back in that, like, people are doing more jazz, but, like, people are, like, reminiscing about jazz. There is a jazz nostalgia in the air. And I I know that that's why I think Aristocats has been coming back up again, because Everybody Wants to Be a Cat is the best example of Disney doing jazz. Absolutely. Hands down. But there's a lot more to this. And, I mean, obviously at the time when it was released, it probably wasn't quite so romanticized because you were leaving the 60s and going into the 70s and... It was kind of a bad attempt by Disney to be hip mm -hmm. at a point when rock and roll was flying off the charts. Yeah. And in fact, in Jungle Book, they tried to get the Beatles in it to do the vultures, but they they just made some... Really? Yeah, they tried to make them be those four vultures, but they couldn't get them. Well, I no, wonder they were, why. They were busy. <laughs> I think they, they end up making a joke about it. Like, the yeah. people who do voice the vultures are, like, blatant. Like, yeah. Beatles impersonators. Oh, absolutely. Um... But it, it's kind of neat to think of this, because this, this is a famous flub episode. Yeah. Um, and it is about a movie that was not well-received. And it's neat to kind of trace that back to a lot of, like, the, the public opinion of a single mother at the time, which is something that you don't even think about this movie being, but it really is. And th the role that the music played. 
And the reason why I think it's coming back is because both of those things are, are becoming really relevant and at least more talked about. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. Um, but I certainly like seeing a really positive interpretation of jazz happen. Yeah, no. And, it, and it's a testament to films like this that, you know, they, they, were, they were ahead of their time in a weird way without even intending to be. So this has been a Mother's Day episode of Devil's Advocate. I think it's the first one, isn't it? It's the first one. I'm sorry. This has been the first Mother's Day episode of Devil's Advocate with my mom. <laughs> yes. This is fun. <laughs> um, and just in case it didn't already get known, um, we have finally launched our Patreon page. Small plug. Yeah. So if, if you ever want to have a more inside look at the way that these episodes get made, or if you want to have your opinion voiced as to what sh- movie we should do next, um, if you go support us on Patreon, you get access to Patreon-only polls that we take into consideration when planning the next episode. Yeah, check it out. It's going to be pretty cool. We're going to have scans of our notes. We're going to have different tiers for rewards and stuff. We're going to put a link in the description and check it out, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, Colby? This has been Colby Herschel. And Carly Sheehan Drum. And Michelle Drum. <laughs> the mother. <laughs> Signing off. <laughs>